Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. And I'll read this passage that we will be looking at this evening. And then we will, by God's help, hear the word of God. So we'll read James, chapter 4. And verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? The spirit which he has made to dwell in us jealously yearns over us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In the opening verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 4, James exposed the sins which characterized his readers, and they were sins of their remaining love and friendship with the world, bitter jealousies, quarrels, conflicts among them. And then in beginning in verse 5 and down through verse 10, James gives them the cure for their spiritual sickness. And it is a cure that ultimately comes from God by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the grace which he alone can give. At the end of verse 5, James mentions the sanctifying indwelling work of the Spirit, the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us, yearns jealously over us, He yearns for the great work of sanctification and our progress in holiness in the Christian life. And then in verse 6, James gives that very great promise that the Holy Spirit gives to us a greater grace, which enables us always to overcome our sin and to be pleasing in his sight. It is a grace that he gives not to the proud and the self-sufficient, but to the humble and those who know their weakness and their dependence. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this is our only hope in our sanctification, that the grace of God would come to us by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It must all come to us by God's grace and work in us by the Holy Spirit. But living the Christian life also involves duties which we must perform. So, in verses 7 through 10, James now gives us a series of these short and concise commands which we must do. God does not fulfill these commands for us. These are commands which we must do. God works in us by the sanctifying Holy Spirit and his grace toward us in verses 5 and 6, but we must work out his commands in verses 7 through 10. And so we might put this passage in the terms of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is by his work of grace in us that we are able to do his will. 
We work because only because of his work within us. So in verses 5 and 6, it is God who is at work in us. And in verses 7 through 10, we are the ones who work out his commandments. This is a proper view of the Christian life. Our work is completely dependent upon his work in us. Many regard verses 7 through 10 as a paragraph in which the first exhortation is given in the beginning of verse 7, that we are to submit ourselves unto God, and everything after that indicates how our submission to God should be carried out. And the commands that follow seem to be in pairs of two. So the first pair is found there at the end of verse 7, and the beginning of verse 8, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Two commands that are complementary to one another. We resist the devil, and we draw near to God. We do the first, so that we may do the second. And each command is followed by a remarkable promise. As we resist the devil, he flees from us. And as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. The rest of verse 8 forms the second pair of commands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then another pair in verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And then he closes the paragraph with a call to humility, just like he did back in verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This evening we continue our study, and it is helpful as we continue now in verse 8 through verse 10 to understand that what James is doing in this passage is that he is calling his readers to repentance. He calls it submission in verse 7. We may also view it as a repentance because a repentance is, repentance is turning away from our sin to God for his mercy that we may find fresh forgiveness and the desire and strength for new obedience. And repentance must continue throughout the entire Christian life. And this is what James is speaking to his readers about. Because because they had fallen into these sins of worldliness, these excessive desires and lusts for earthly things, they had their darling sins which they had nurtured, And their sins had grown so strong in them, and they refused to let them go. They were trying to live the Christian life, holding on to their love of the things of this world, thinking they could arrive safely in heaven at the same time. But James is telling them here, it cannot be so. Because to love this present world and to seek to be its friend makes one an enemy of God. And in verse 4, he calls them adulteresses. And what he is saying to them is that your affairs with this present world, they must come to an end. You cannot have the love of the world and the love of God at the same time in your hearts. In the words of Jesus, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. But as we hear James' words here, we cannot look upon these people to whom he wrote as if we are better than them, because none of us are exempt from these very same kinds of sins We all know the draw and the attraction of the things of this world. We all feel its powerful allurements. The world has a thousand ways to entice each one of us. 
And one of us has one weakness and one besetting sin. One is drawn to worldliness in one way. Another is drawn to it in another way. And it is a danger to each of us, especially in our present society in which we live. So much wealth, so much leisure, so much pleasure and so many things to attract us. Our souls are continually bombarded by the thoughts and the ways of the world. In the age of the internet and social media and big tech, we are avalanched by the things of this world. We are like men climbing a steep hill, a mountain, and the avalanche comes down upon us. And it all seems so overwhelming to us. It is a sad thing. And we would be embarrassed if others could see into our hearts and know what we know or what we ought to know about ourselves. Concerning the remaining love of the things of this world and how we flirt with the world in one way or another. How can it be that this continues in us. So what James is writing here, it would be well for us to remember this passage often and to examine ourselves as to where such things, such sins exist in our own lives and at every point where such things exist to do what James tells us to do in this passage. The first step in submission to God is to draw near. Or the first step that we consider tonight, this morning we considered resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then in the beginning of verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Again, a command followed by a promise. And the implication of this command is that their worldliness and their sin had made a distance separating them from God. Every step of pride, every step into worldliness is a step away from God. And James is calling his readers to turn back, to turn back from their wayward love of the world and to return to God and draw near to him. The language here, draw near to God, comes from the Old Testament priesthood. James, as we've seen, spoke often from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the priests were the only ones who could draw near to God and enter the holy place with sacrifices. For us who are Christians in the New Testament, we have all been made priests to God. And we all have that very high privilege of drawing near to him through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And not with sacrifices of animal blood, but with the blood of Jesus, which has opened up the holy place for us. The apostle tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, let us draw near. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, we have confidence to enter into the holy place, to draw near to the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So this command here in verse 8 to draw near to God is God's invitation to his believing people. And in this context, as James is calling them to repentance, it is God's invitation to his people that whenever we find any area of sin in our lives, no matter how great its power may be over us, that it has gained over us, we are still to draw near to God. We are not to despair as if our sins are too great and there is no hope for us. We are not to stay at a distance from God when our sins have been exposed. That would be a great lie of the devil and we are to resist him. 
James says, resist him. He will, he will flee from you. And he says, draw near to God. The promise is draw near to God. And then he will draw near to you. Because he is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. James has used strong language in the previous verses to speak of how grievous their sins have been. They have had bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. And their pleasures have waged war in their members. And they have been like adulteresses who are making themselves the enemies of God. But James is telling them that even though their sins have been such, they may return to God. They may draw near to him. And when they do, he will draw near to them. As soon as he sees them drawing near, then he will respond quickly and draw near to them with forgiveness and mercy and cleansing. His merciful and loving character is here seen. The first step of humble confession towards him, he steps forward toward us with new mercy. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James is saying, with more of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 5. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you, with the greater grace that is mentioned, that is more powerful than all your sins in the beginning of verse 6. When we were unbelievers... We drew near to God for the very first time when we first repented of our sins and came to faith in Jesus. And in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, Jesus compares the Father in heaven with the Father of that prodigal son. We should turn to that passage and we'll see how God draws near to us, Luke chapter 15. So in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, we have the prodigal son. And he went out into the far country. He squandered his estate with loose living. And then he came to his senses, and we read in verse 18, he said, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And then when he returned to his father in verse 20, Luke tells us what his father did. And when he got up and came to his father, and then we read, but while he was still a long way off, his father looking out the window. His father saw him a long way off and felt compassion for him. And then what did his father do? He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so his son, his prodigal son, was returning to him. And God in grace and mercy began to immediately draw near and run toward him. And then we read in verse 23, he said, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this son of mine was dead and he has come to life. He was lost and he was found and they began to be merry. Bring out all of the provisions of my beloved son and everything that he has done and cleanse him of his sin. This is the willingness of the father in heaven to receive whoever draws near to him as he draws near to them as well. This was our experience when we first became Christians. Do we think that this has changed with our Heavenly Father? 
now that we are Christians? Is his willingness to draw near to us any less than when he first received us? No, it continues in the Christian life. So that when we draw near to him with sincere repentance, he immediately sees and he draws near to us with mercy and forgiveness. And so it is the promise that James speaks to his readers, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To draw near to God is not an outward drawing near by religious ceremonies or by rituals, but it is in drawing near, an inward spiritual drawing near of the heart. It is a movement of our souls toward God with sincerity, turning from sin and desiring him with a whole heart. It will involve prayer and worship and hearing and the reading of the word because those are the means by which we draw near to him and he draws near to us. But it must always arise from the sincerity and the inward, genuine desires of the heart. Sometimes drawing near to God in the Old Testament is called seeking after him. We can see that in one passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Back in the book of First Chronicles and chapter 28. And David charged, charges his son Solomon here in verse 9. He says to his son, as for you, my son Solomon... Know the Lord, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So Solomon, David here charges Solomon that he is to know the Lord and serve him, but he must do so with a whole heart and with a willing mind. The heart and the mind are the inward parts of our being. And God must be served, not with a divided or a partial heart, but with a whole and an entire heart. And he must be served, not with a reluctant and hesitating mind, but with a willing and cheerful and obedient mind. Everything else is unworthy of him. And it is vain to seek to serve him in any other way, because God searches all hearts and understands every intent of the heart. And we can never put on a display or an outward show of religion and expect that he will receive us. We must come to him. We must draw near to him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. But then if we do, he says at the end of verse 9, he says, if you seek him in this way, he will let you find him. In other way, in other words, in terms of what James is speaking in, in James chapter 4 and verse 8 to his readers, you cannot draw near to him with your worldliness and hanging on to your sins. You must draw near with a whole heart, with a willing mind, with sincerity. And if you draw near to him in that way, then he will draw near to you with mercy and forgiveness. The same thing that David is telling Solomon here at the end of verse 9. So this Seeking after God, this drawing near to him must be with the sincerity of a whole mind. We turn back to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, draw near to God and the promise is that he will draw near to you. And if we are to 
do this in a way that pleases God and he truly draws near to us. Now James gives us another set of commands in the rest of verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now James uses some strong terms by which he calls his readers. He calls them sinners. Now we should not object to being called sinners because that is what we are. Saved sinners, yes, but nevertheless, sinners. But then he also addresses them here as being double-minded. They were double-minded. That word double-minded was used back in James chapter 1, where the man doubted in his prayers, and James said he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The idea here is that this double-minded person cannot decide with any certainty who he will serve. One day he serves the world, and the next day he serves God. And there is no resolution in his soul. It seems he has two minds, one toward God, one toward the world, and he cannot determine which one he will follow. We remember what Elijah said on Mount Carmel. He said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there was Mr. Facing both ways. That's who James is speaking of here. In the double-minded man, some of his hearers, of his readers, were double-minded. And he uses this term to indicate how far some of them had strayed from God's ways. And James is seeking to awaken them. They were backslidden Christians. They had not maintained God's standard of gospel living. They must change their ways. He uses strong terms to call them back from their love of the world to God himself. James was aware of how serious the situation was. And if they went on in this way, they would be headlong into an apostasy. And so James is calling them back from their sins to return to God. Their worldliness had defiled them. They needed cleansing. Their pleasures and pursuit of pleasures had contaminated them. They needed purifying. The language here of being cleansed and being purified is once again from the Old Testament priests where they had to ceremonially wash themselves and purify themselves to draw near to God. And in those ceremonial washings of the Old Testament, what God was teaching is the complete, utter holiness of God himself. And in the light of his holiness, we see our sin. The words that James uses here in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We can see many of these same words in Psalm 24 and verses 3 and 4, if we turn there for just a moment. Psalm 24 Psalm 24 and verse 3. And David writes here, in verse 3, he says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who is the man who can draw near to God? Who can draw near to him into his holy place? The answer is given in verse 4. He who has clean hands. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The same thing that James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We find the same thing in Psalm 51 and verse 7. David, in his psalm of repentance, he said, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter 
than snow. In Isaiah chapter 1 in verse 16, wash yourselves, God says, and make yourselves clean and remove the evil of your deeds from my sight and cease to do evil. So James is drawing from the Old Testament language of ceremonial washings, and then it came into moral washing and cleanness before God. That's the language that James uses. We turn back to James chapter 4. And so what James is doing here in verse 8 is he is calling them to holiness and purity of life, which has always been commanded of God's people, both outwardly in their hands, cleanse your hands, and inwardly in their hearts, purify your hearts. The word cleanse that he uses here is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Chapter 7 and verse 1, where he says, Let us cleanse ourselves, the same word, from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word purify here is the same word that Peter used in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, where he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, purified your souls. And it is the same word that John uses, 1 John 3 and verse 3. Let everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purify himself as he is pure. So verse 8 is a call to holiness in the Christian life. It is what we should always be doing. At all times, drawing near to God in prayer and worship and experiencing his drawing near to us by the Spirit and by his grace. And we should always be cleansing ourselves from our sins and purifying ourselves and laying aside all of our sins. Laying aside all of our sins James says back in chapter 1, verse 21, let us put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Let us cleanse ourselves. Let us purify ourselves in this way. So James is telling them, the double-minded, they could not have it both ways. They could not draw near to God while they were willing to walk in their sins. They must be willing to cleanse themselves from all their worldly lusts and purify their hearts to draw near to God. Now we should remember, we should note here the order in which James puts these commands. He does not say first, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and then draw near to God as if we could cleanse and purify ourselves to enable us to draw near to God. If that were the order, then we would never be able to draw near to God. But James puts first, draw near to God, and then he will draw near to you. And when he gives the command to cleanse yourselves and to purify yourselves, what he means is that when you draw near to God, You must be sincere to lay aside all of your sins. You must be genuine and with a whole heart to be done with your iniquities by his grace. Draw near to him in this way and he will draw near to you with his sanctifying grace to cleanse and to purify you of your sins. So James puts these things in this certain order. In verse 9, he now tells us, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. James is calling them to repentance and he is telling them here their repentance must be real, it must be deep, It must be genuine. He uses these expressions to startle them. That they might see the danger of their sin. 
because their pleasure-seeking and their worldly, self-centered lives had brought them in to great danger. They thought lightly of their sins. They suppressed the voice of conscience within them. They greed the Holy Spirit. They thought they could sin with impunity. And they had laughter and they had joy as they continued in their careless and self-indulgent lives. But when a professing Christian finds himself in such a state as this, there is only one way out of it, and it is by repentance. And that's what James is calling them to here. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, gloom, heaviness, and dejection of spirit. We notice he says your laughter and your joy. Not God's joy, not the joy of the Holy Spirit, your joy. From your pleasures that were waging war in your members, you adulteresses, he speaks to the same people, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James does not say here that the Christian life is not a, a life of joy. James knew that it is a life of joy. He said back in chapter 1 and verse 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In chapter 5 and verse 13, he said, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. He speaks in the beginning of verse 5 of the indwelling Holy Spirit. James knew that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. James would agree with what Peter says, that there is joy unspeakable and full of glory that is known to a Christian. But the Christian life is not all joy. And surely it is not to be a life of joy when people walk in the sins that James has been speaking of. And the Holy Spirit who gives joy is also the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and brings true repentance. Because sin is always harmful to us. And sin is blinding. And sin is always dangerous and serious even in the life of a Christian. And the only way out is by this repentance and this hatred of sin and sorrow over it. The first word that James uses there in verse 9, be miserable, comes from the same root word which Paul used in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, when Paul said, O wretched man that I am. Be miserable. Be wretched. See your wretchedness. Paul said, I am wretched because of my remaining sin. James is telling them to have a little bit of Paul's spirit in them. Be wretched. Be miserable over your sins. As you look at those words in verse 9, they seem strong. But listen to the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in Luke chapter 6 and verse 21, Jesus said, Blessed are you when you weep now, for you shall laugh. The weeping is now, and the joy will come later. What James says here in verse 9 is similar to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 when the Corinthians had repented of their sins. 
And Paul said there, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. For behold, what earnestness, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. This godly sorrow, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So James wanted among his readers, something of the same repentance that had taken place among the Corinthians. And if we read the book of Psalms, the language that James uses here will not seem so unusual and shocking to us. David said in Psalm 32 in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Psalm 38 in verse 2, thine arrows have sunk deep into me. Thy hand has pressed down on me. David speaks as a Christian, a believer. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. That was David in his expressions of repentance as a Christian. Many other such expressions could be found in the book of Psalms. So David spoke in these very same terms as in verse 9. David was a man after God's own heart. David knew what it was to draw near to God and have God draw near to him. James is calling his worldly-minded readers to have something of the heart of David and to draw near to God in the same way that David drew near to him. David said in Psalm 119 in verse 71, he said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. And then the paragraph closes in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. It is always here God's way with men, a general principle who, as Jesus said many times in the gospel, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So James now brings us full circle back to the humility that he spoke of back in verse 6. It is a command in verse 10 with a promise once again, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord is the command. What James means here is have right views of yourself and who you really are in the presence of God and in his sight. Do not think of yourself as you like to think of yourself because of your pride and your self-centeredness. And do not think of yourself as other men think of you, but think of yourself as God looks down from heaven and thinks of you, and humble yourselves in his sight, in the presence of the Lord. Know something, know something of your own insignificance, as you are a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow, never to be seen here again. And compare your fleeting and helpless self to the eternal and everlasting God. Know something of your unworthiness. That what you really are, what we really are, are hell-deserving sinners 
in so much need of cleansing and purifying. And let this thought sink down into your heart for just a moment. That is, God is opposed to the proud. That he could be opposed to you in his eternal judgment and wrath and cast you away forever. And if we have any thoughts of the truth and the reality of these things which are very true, then we will begin to have a few humble thoughts about ourselves and we will begin to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. And we will acknowledge that he is the sovereign who has every right to govern over us in every detail of our lives, and we must submit to him in all things willingly. We must humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. That's the command, says James. And then... He follows it again with a promise that he will exalt you. For those who humble themselves in the presence of the Lord, he will exalt them. And the first step in his exaltation will be that he will have mercy and forgiveness upon us and cleanse us from all of our sins. As we draw near to him, he will draw near to us with mercy and forgiveness and grace. As David said in Psalm 32 and verse 1, he said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He will exalt you. Humble yourselves and seek him for forgiveness and he will exalt you. And there is no more exalted place on earth than for a man to be forgiven of all of his sins and to be cleansed in the sight of God. The world does not see it, but it will be revealed one day. But it is the highest place and the richest place that any person could have in this world to be one who is under the favor and the love of God. To have the Holy Spirit given to us, to dwell in us, to sanctify us, to prepare us for the world to come, to be those who are under the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Here is the most exalted person in all the world, in this world very humble, but in the sight of God very exalted. To have Christ's righteousness upon us, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But then there is that last and final exaltation of the Lord that will come in the end. When Christ will return from heaven with great glory and power, all of the angels with him, we will be raised from the dead with imperishable bodies, raised with glory and power. We will look into the sky and we will see Jesus on his glorious throne. And he will say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And there will be no more miserableness or wretchedness of sin. No more mourning, no more weeping or sorrow as James speaks here, but only light and joy and happiness and peace. And everything that James says in this passage will come to its ultimate and eternal fulfillment. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who has dwelt in us. And through all of this life, he has yearned jealously for our sanctification. His great work will be perfect and complete. And we will be without any sin. We will be perfectly cleansed and purified in all of our being without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing in holiness and blamelessness forever. 
no longer any need to resist the devil because he will be condemned into the lake of fire and brimstone forever and ever, never to be seen by us again. And we will draw near to God and he will draw near to us in a way that we never have known before in that most marvelous way in which he will put his tabernacle over us and he will be our God and we will be his people forever. And it is all certain because it is promised by God in his word. And he will do all that he says. In the present life we must wait as James says later in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. In this life, now we wait for it. But it will come, it will come, it is certain. If we have humbled ourselves in the presence of the Lord, if we have sincerely, genuinely sought his forgiveness and drawn near to him, it will happen, it will take place. We will be exalted with Christ. And fellow heirs with him on the last day. In this life, there must be humiliation. In the life to come, he will exalt us. So let us humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord always. And he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we do bless you, thank you for your word, thank you for its great truth to guide us and help us in all our ways in the Christian life. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to take heed to the warnings of this passage. And we pray that you would help us that we would receive that cure that James gives for all our sinful ways and that you would help us to walk in the ways of his commands. Give to us more of the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be pleasing in these things. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus. Be our great shepherd and guard us and help us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.